Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? It's an unanswered question we see at the beginning of the Job here. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? When I was an undergraduate, I was going to school at Azusa Pacific University. I was working on my biblical studies degree, and uh, there's this saying that they have at private universities, and it's uh, ring by spring. And uh, I, I, I was very keyed in onto the saying because I was very single going into college. So I was excited to see maybe uh, this extra money I'm putting towards my education will, will get me a wife. Not really. I, I really wanted the degree. But that was a big part of it, too, because I was single. And, uh, and I remember early on, I was in one of my classes, and being a biblical studies major, it's a lot of dudes. You're sitting in the class with a lot of dudes. And so when a girl walks in, you notice. And, and this particular morning, um, this was one of my first classes, um, and this was the first day of the class, and, and a girl walks in. So I'm like, all right, this is a win. We're already doing well at, a, at APU. And she comes, she sits right next to me. Now, I'm pretty excited at this point. I don't have a lot of game. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm an awkward guy. I always have been. Um, and so to have a girl come sit right next to me, uh, this was a pretty big deal. Um, and so I'm excited. I'm already like, this is a double win so far today. And, and so we're talking, we're getting to know each other, and then the class starts. And then by the end of the class, uh, the professor, he's like, hey, at the, uh, by the time we meet next, I want you guys to get together in groups, and I want you guys to work on a group project. And so she then turns to me and says, hey, would you like to be my partner for this group project? And on the inside, I'm like, yes, come on, yeah. But I played it cool. I was like, all right, yeah, of course. And so we exchanged contact info. And then she says, hey, if you're not doing anything now, why don't you come over to my dorm and we can work on the project there? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And so we go over to her dorm and we start working on the project. She introduces me to her roommates. And then they leave for lunch. And then I remember we're sitting in her living room. And so they have these dorms. They're called the mods up there. And, and they're like, they're old, um, old mobile homes that somehow ended up on campus and they've become a bunch of dorms. And I remember we were sitting in her living room and she had these two chairs in the corner and I'm sitting in one chair and she's sitting in the other and she's talking and I'm looking at her and it's going perfect, like seriously perfect. I'm thinking about calling my parents and be like, hey, however much we're paying for tuition, let's double it because it's working. And I'm, I'm like on cloud nine right here. And as I'm looking at her and as she's talking, she tell me a little bit about her life story. I'm looking her in the eyes and then I have a seizure. Yeah, like right there in her living room, I have a seizure. Now, I have epilepsy, so this wasn't like a complete shock, um, but it was because, you know, 99% of the time, my medication works. And so I had just switched to this new medication um, because the other one wasn't working. And so we thought we had it under control, and then we didn't. And so I'm sitting in this living room, and I go from being like a level 10 on like the happy sphere, and, and now all of a sudden, I'm like down here, and I was devastated. Now, I'm really fortunate. Uh, my seizures are not what they call grand mal seizures. Uh, mine are really mild. If I were to have one right now, I might like brace myself on this table and just zone out for 30 seconds. Um, it's really mild. And by the end of my seizure, I kind of come back um, and she's still talking. Like she has no idea that I just had a seizure. Like somehow, somehow this guy in her living room looking her in the eyes had a seizure. I still don't know how she doesn't know. Maybe she was just being nice. Um, but but I, I stopped her like, hey, I'm so sorry. Like I just had a seizure. I got to go get this figured out. And, and so I, I step out and I was devastated. And I hope she knows I was telling the truth. That'd be a really sorry excuse to like leave a date or a group project. But I stepped out and I called my dad. And I was like, hey, can you come pick me up? Um, my epilepsy's acting up. And, and he did. And I remember we were driving home. So APU's up the 57, um, up in Azusa, near Pasadena, kind of. And we were driving back south on the 57. And there's a stretch of the freeway where you come up over the hill and you're overlooking this valley. And, uh, and, and there was this beautiful sunset that night, this beautiful sunset. And I, I love California sunset, sunsets. They're one of my favorite things because they're so beautiful. And part of it's the smog, but it's beautiful. And, 
And I remember looking out, and there was Cal Poly Pomona to the right, and they have all this grassland as part of their campus. And then there was a stretch of city to the left, and I, and I saw the sunset, and I remember feeling nothing. Like, usually that would bring a smile to my face. Usually I might take my, take my phone out and get a picture of it. I remember feeling nothing. I remember being so defeated, being so concerned about my future because I, I had a job. I was just starting my semester at APU. I was, I was going to school, like doing a lot of homework at APU, and, and I had all this stuff going on in my life, all these hopes and all these dreams. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, man, now I can't drive. Now, um, I don't know what's going to happen with this girl. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do my homework assignments. Do I have to call out of work tomorrow? Right? And I'm thinking about all the things that I now have to deal with. And I'm stressed. I'm beyond stressed. I was feeling so low, so defeated. And I remember I was so defeated that I was looking at the sunset, and I just felt nothing but despair. Now, the, the story obviously is unique to me, but that feeling I know isn't. Right? That feeling of despair, that feeling of hitting the bottom, Life happens. Life stacks up against us. And we get to that point where we just feel defeated. We're in the midst of tough circumstances and we look and we say, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? And I remember being there and I remember feeling the weight of that. And we're gonna be talking about this today. We're gonna take a look at Job and we're gonna take a look at us. And we're gonna, I wanna ask this question today. What do we do in these circumstances? What is the best way to respond to times of trouble? What is the best way to respond to times of adversity? Because if we handle it well, then it can be just that issue in itself. But if we don't handle adversity well, that one area can bleed into all the other areas of our life. And, and when we've seen this, for me, this was a health issue, right? It was my epilepsy that was acting up. But because I didn't handle that well, because I allowed the stress and the fear and the anxiety to overwhelm me, it ended up not only being a health issue, it was also a work issue. I called out of work, right? My performance dropped. I was so worried about having a seizure at work, I just, I called out for a full week. It ended up being an academic issue too. I emailed my professors and I said, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to turn in my assignments this week until I get this worked out. It also affected the way I was treating my family. I was being short with them. I was living with my parents at the time and my brothers. Right? What, what should have just been a health issue became a work issue and a family issue. And many of you have experienced this, where, where something's going on in your life. There's a crisis at work. There's a crisis in your marriage. And what could just be an isolated incident will bleed into the rest of our lives if we don't handle these things well. So how can we handle adversity? How can we handle difficult times? Because they will come. Many of you are in the midst of one right now, or you're coming out of one, or you're about to step into one. Right? We live on this world that's broken and fractured and life gets tough. And so whether you're coming out of a season of adversity or you're heading into one, we need to know how we as Christians should be responding to these things in the best way possible. And part of this is our outlook. I want to share this quote, and this is a quote from, from Karen Hall. She, uh, she writes this on an article of Psychology Today. And I've got an image that kind of goes along with this. This was on the article and I thought it was helpful. But it says this, some people see obstacles as a puzzle to solve. Some people see obstacles as an opportunity to grow. Others see obstacles as threats. Still others see obstacles as meaning they cannot succeed. Your view of barriers to achieving your goals affects how you react. Sometimes we look at, at, at adversity and trouble. We look at it and we say, well, that's a barrier. That's a wall, right? If I'm heading down the road this way and I'm trying to achieve this, then this thing that's happened, this crisis in my marriage, this crisis at work, this health issue, this is a barrier that is stopping me. And sometimes we look at it that way and we say, well, I just need to reevaluate my goals. 
Sometimes we look at, at obstacles and we say, well, it's a speed bump. I can still get where I'm going, but man, this is going to slow me down. This is going to take some speed. This is going to take some momentum out of my stride. But I'd like to argue that, that we shouldn't see it as an obstacle blocking our path. We shouldn't see it as a speed bump to slow us down. No, when we step into times of, of adversity, of seasons of trouble, I think we should look at them as a ramp, as something that God wants to use to launch us into that next season of life. Something that God wants to use, not to take speed away, not to redirect our path, but to launch us with more resolve, with more intensity, with more passion, with a greater understanding of who he is and how he wants to work in your life. I don't think that, that times of trouble should slow us down at all. I think they should propel us forward. And that's the question I wanna take into the passage today. We're gonna to jump into Job and I wanna take this question. How do we face adversity? in a way that will propel us rather than impede us? How can we step into these times? How does God want us to step into these times in a way where he will propel us forward? Not in a way that stops us, not in a way that slows us down, but in a way that launches us. Is that even possible? So I'd like you to turn to the book of Job. We're getting a little ambitious there. We're gonna take the whole book of Job. And... Yeah, we're not going to read all of it, obviously, but, um, but, but, but we're going to get through the whole book of Job, and, and I'm actually really excited. I've been really excited uh, working on this uh, with Carlos and Matt and putting this together, and as I've been preparing this specific message, um, I've just been so excited to see what God has shown to me, and I'm excited to, to share that with you today. And so we're going to start in Job chapter 1, and the book of Job, just to give us some context here, uh, the book of Job is what's considered wisdom literature, and, and there are three different books that, that fit into, most scholars agree, that fit into our Bible as wisdom literature, and, and the first one is Proverbs, the second one is Ecclesiastes, and then the last one is Job. Now, Proverbs, many of you are probably familiar with it. Um, it's one of the more popular of the three. Proverbs is really straightforward. Proverbs has a, a very black and white message, and, and it's this. If you are righteous and you are upright, God will bless you. But if you are wicked and you are unjust, God's hand will be against you, right? God is for those who are good and upright and who honor him, and God is against those who aren't. And any proverb you read, you'll see that. It's very cut and dry, very black and white. The righteous will be lifted up and the wicked will be put down. You see that all throughout Proverbs. Now Solomon writes Proverbs and Solomon's a very wise guy. Solomon gets older though. And later on, at the end of his life, we know that he writes Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has a little bit different of a tune. Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon, after experiencing everything he's experienced, he starts to have some questions. He starts to make some observations. He says, yes, God is just. Yes, God is fair. But sometimes life isn't. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous die young. And Solomon's bringing his life experience into this proverb wisdom, and he's pointing out the fact that sometimes, even though God is fair, life doesn't seem fair. Ecclesiastes gets a little muddy. It brings up some questions. Ecclesiastes is a hard read. And then we get to Job, the end of the wisdom literature, and it really ties it all in because we see a real example a real-life example of Job, this guy who, according to the narrator and according to Job and according to God at the end, Job is righteous, he's upright, and he's blameless. We have the picture-perfect character in the Bible. Job is so righteous, not only does he sacrifice for himself, he sacrificed for, for his kids and the sins they may or may not have committed. Job is on top of it. The narrator said there's no one like him in the land. And yet in the book of Job, we see this righteous man go through some of the worst trials that we see throughout the entire Bible. And we're faced again with this question brought up in Ecclesiastes. 
How come bad things happen to good people? But even more than that, how come God allows it? So I want to turn to Job chapter 1, verse 1. So if you would turn there, we're going to have it on the screen, but if you've got a hard copy in front of you, Job chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So we're introduced to Job as a character, and we see that he is the right guy. He's doing things right. God is, God is impressed with him. God is happy with him. Job is doing things right. And then very quickly, we see the scene change. We see God in his throne room. And we see the angels coming before God and presenting themselves before God. But with the angels comes the accuser, comes Satan. And Satan comes in. And then God says to Satan, he says, hey, have you considered Job? God says, there's no one like him on all the earth. He's upright. He's blameless. He's righteous. And then Satan challenges Job, challenges God. And Satan says, well, God, Job only loves you. Job's only righteous because you're good to him. You see, you, you, you've protected him. You built a hedge of protection around him. You blessed him tremendously. Job, Job was incredibly rich. Job was incredibly healthy and happy. He's, he's happy, healthy, wealthy. And Satan's saying, look, because you've given him all this stuff, that's the only reason that he blesses you and he loves you. See, if you took all that away, God, if you took away Job's blessings and his protection, he wouldn't love you anymore. Now, this is a serious accusation against God. This is a serious challenge against God because God is pointing at Job and saying there's none like him. And so Satan knows if he could tear Job down, if he could shake Job's faith, then he could really tear down the faith of the world here because Job is the best. And then God accepts the challenge. Now, this is difficult. This is where it starts getting, and we're only in chapter one. This is where it gets really difficult. God says, okay, he allows Satan, he permits Satan to take everything away from Job, everything. Now it happens in phases. First, it's all of his stuff, and then there's round two, and God permits Satan to take away all of his health. And we get to the end of chapter two, and Job has lost everything. In a matter of hours, all of his wealth is gone. All of his servants are put to the sword and killed. His kids are dead. His health is gone. He's sitting there cutting himself, cutting the scabs off of his body. Job has lost everything, everything. The one thing he has left, his wife comes up to him. And she says, curse God and die. At the end of chapter 2, we're, we're left with a, with a desolate image. Job is sitting on ashes alone. His wife has left him, his kids are dead, his, his servants, his wealth, everything is gone. And then we see Job's friends step in, and this takes us to chapter 3. Now, chapter 3 through 37, they're the this is the longest section of the book. And this is, this is Job and his friends having a conversation. And it goes back and forth. At first it's Job, and then it's his friends. And then it's Job, and then it's his friends. And we see this cycle. And, and it happens in three different phases. And each way it starts the same. It, it always starts with Job lamenting. It always starts with Job crying out, why God? Job even says, I wish I was never born I cursed the day I was born. Why did you even bring me out of my mother's womb for me to experience this kind of misery and suffering? Why are you doing this to me, God? It says this in Job chapter 13. He says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. As Job is sitting here, not only is he, is he saying, God, why would you do this to me? He's also saying, God, I'm innocent. 
God, if this is punishment, I don't deserve it. No doubt he's thinking of Proverbs and he's thinking of the wisdom that says the righteous will be blessed. He's thinking of the wisdom that says that God's hand will be against those who are unrighteous and unjust. And Job is sitting here saying, I've been righteous. I've been worshiping you. I've been honoring you. Why is your hand against me? And he always ends. There are three cycles throughout 3 through 37, and he always ends by saying the same thing. If only I could plead my case before you. If only we could talk. If only we could straighten this out because I haven't done anything to deserve this. And then his friends interject. And his friends, they always seem to say the same thing too. And they, and they repeat this Proverbs knowledge. They, they, they repeat this wisdom that says God's hand is against the wicked. And really what they're saying to Job is they're saying, hey, look, God is just and you're suffering. Therefore, you must have sinned. This must be punitive. You must have done something wrong. God wouldn't do this if you were actually righteous. And they actually go on to list potential sins that he may have committed. They say this in, ch in chapter 20, starting in verse 4. It says, Surely you know how it has been of old, ever since mankind was placed on earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. So they're responding to Job's claims that he's righteous, and they're saying, well, you're probably not. Their understanding of God said that if you're righteous, this stuff wouldn't be happening to you. God would never allow you to suffer if you're honoring him. This must be punishment. And they go on to, to, to read these poems about how God is against the wicked. And they close out chapter 20 saying this, a flood will carry off his house. They're talking about the wicked person. Rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked. The heritage appointed for them by God. Now, these chapters give us the best wisdom the world has to offer when it comes to the question of where is God in the midst of suffering? And, and their answer is simple. Their answer is that, well, if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong because God would never allow this to happen to you if you were honoring him. See, God punishes wicked people and he blesses righteous people. Therefore, your suffering means that you're being punished. But Job disagrees. Job says, this can't be punishment because I haven't done anything wrong. Now, typically we would say, well, yeah, everyone's done something wrong. But we see here the narrator say, look, Job is blameless. And then we see at the end, God commends Job. And he says, in, in everything Job said, he didn't sin. So we know that Job is blameless. We know that Job isn't deserving of punishment. And yet here he's being punished. Where is God in the midst of this? Now, while they disagree on, on what God's doing, Job's friends say God is punishing him. Job is uncertain of what God's doing. And he always ends with this, with this plead, God, will you speak to me? Can we work this out? Because Job doesn't know what's going on. He's holding, in, he's holding on to God in the midst of this. He's asking God, what are you doing? If only we could work this out. But the one thing they do agree on, and this is where it gets even more challenging, the one thing that Job and his friends agree on is that God is in control of this situation. They agree that God is playing an active role in this. See, they know that God is the creator of the universe. They know that God can step in and do anything, anytime, anywhere. Right? And we believe in a God who's mighty to save. We believe in a God who can part the Red Sea to save his people. We believe in a God who can stop the, the skies from raining, who can cause a drought, but who can also cause a flood. We believe in a God who can do anything, who is mighty and powerful to save. And many of you, like myself, have seen God step in and do miraculous things in the lives of people. Job and his friends are aware of this. 
So much so that when God doesn't step in, they know that he's making that choice. They know that God could choose to step in and save him. And he could also choose to sit back. And we see here that that Job is wrestling with this reality that God can save him, but is choosing not to. And that's something that we have to wrestle with too. In our times of suffering, in our times of difficulty, in our times of grief, God could step in and change the situation. I believe in a God who's mighty to save. But there are times when he chooses not to. Why? John Piper is a famous theologian, and he wrote this article after 9-11, as America was grieving, as America was processing just the loss and, and, and the tragedy. And John Piper writes this article about suffering, and I've just found it to be so profound and insightful, and I'd like to read this for you. He says this, Therefore, all suffering is in the sway of God's providence. He could always stop it. When he doesn't, his permissions are planned and purposeful and in his overall design, wise. Again, he's writing this after 9-11. He is a righteous God. He goes on to say, and in the all-wise providence of God, permissions are always purposeful. His permissions are planned His permissions are wise. He is a righteous God. God's permissions are purposeful. God is permitting Job to experience this suffering. When Satan came forward and laid out his plan to disprove Job's faithfulness, God permitted it. But here's the crazy thing. At the end of chapter two, after Job has lost everything, His wife comes up to him, says, curse God and die. And Job doesn't. Job doesn't curse God. Job holds on to God in the midst of that loss. See, at the end of chapter two, God could have said to Satan, hey, see, look, I proved my point. But this was never about Satan. This was never about proving to Satan that Job loved him. See, God already knows that. That wasn't a battle that God was fighting against Satan. Maybe Satan thought it was. Maybe we thought it was at the beginning too. But the fact that the story continues beyond chapter two, the fact that God doesn't step in and save him right away, because he could have. And if it was just about proving to Satan that Job was only being faithful because God was blessing him, then God would have stepped in a lot earlier. But this was not about Satan. This wasn't about proving something. God is doing something else. God is permitting Job to go through a tremendous amount of loss, absolute loss, God is permitting this, but he's doing something. And Job's aware of this, but he doesn't know what. Job is sitting here in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his loss, in the midst of being accused by his friends for being unrighteous, in the midst of being accused of being pretentious for assuming that that he's undeserving of God's wrath and punishment. Job's saying, look, I know that I've been honoring God, and I know he's doing something, but I just don't know what. If only I could speak to him. And Job is holding on to God in the midst of this. And then this is what's crazy. After 37 chapters, after 37 chapters of this long absence, after 37 chapters of misery and pain and suffering and laments and arguing, God speaks. It's a long 37 chapters, but God finally steps in and God speaks. And I still get chills when I read this. In the midst of a storm, God's voice cuts through the Job, and it says this. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? 
Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth? When I made the clouds its garments, when I wrapped it in thick garment, and when I wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, this is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. Have you journeyed to the springs of the deep? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know this. God sits Job down. God puts Job in his place. Job says, God, speak to me. And God says, okay, I'm going to speak to you. Job is put in his place in God's sovereignty, God's power, God's might is revealed. We just had 37 chapters of of Job and his friends arguing about about God's justice and and God's faithfulness and God's fairness and and what, what God might be doing. And then God comes in and God speaks. And you know what's crazy? God doesn't answer a single one of their questions. God doesn't have to answer to us. Instead of answering their questions, instead of saying, here, Job, this is why I'm doing this. Here, Job, let me teach you about my justice. He says, I'm the one who created justice. I'm the one who created death. I am. In the midst of this, Job is brought low but he's also raised up in the face of God. We see this this conclude the book of Job, and then we have one final chapter at the end. In verse 42, sorry, chapter 42, we have this closing narrative where Job is restored. After Job responds to God, Job is then restored. He's happier, healthier, and wealthier by the end of the story. And it's an odd way to end it because we actually end it the way we started it. Job is once again rich. Job once again has a full family, His wife returns to him. Everything is back as it was. And it's almost like nothing ever happened. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, his name is Walter Brueggemann. And he compares the book of Job to the Wizard of Oz. He talks about the Wizard of Oz and and he says, all right, in the Wizard of Oz, you start off with Dorothy, right? She's in black and white monochrome Kansas. And she's got kind of this boring reality, this boring life. But then she's transported to Oz. She undergoes all this crazy stuff But then the end of the movie, we find Dorothy right back where she started. She's back in Kansas, and things are back to this black and white reality. And we see Job take a similar journey. Job has this understanding of God. He has this Proverbs mentality. And we see Job as a righteous person being blessed. But then all of a sudden, something happens. Things shift, and no longer is the righteous person blessed in the way that we think they should be. But then by the end of Job, he's returned back to the reality that we started in, where he's happy, he's healthy, and he's wealthy. He looks the same, but he isn't. Something happened in the midst of there. And by the end of the book of Job, we're still left with this question, what in the world was God doing? Why did God permit this? 
When I went to bed the night my dad took me home from Azusa, I, I was really hoping that, uh, that I'd wake up that next morning and my epilepsy would be gone. I was praying for that. I was desperately praying for that. Because sometimes uh, when, it, when it flares up, it'll just go away. Just a matter of taking another, another one of my epilepsy pills and kind of leveling out, getting some rest. And so I woke up the next morning and it wasn't away. It was still there. And I was, I was pretty low at this point because I was realizing this was, this was going to be a bit of an adjustment. And, and I'm all of a sudden having to call out of work, and, and I'm getting really stressed. And I remember early in the morning, that morning, um, after I kind of realized that, that it wasn't gone yet, I remember walking out to my backyard, and it was cold. It was a cold morning. The sun was, 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 had been up for maybe an hour, and I was walking in my backyard, and I was barefoot, and we had this pool in the back of my parents' house. And I walked back there, and there are these black bricks that go around the outside of the pool. And I walk up to the edge, and I put my feet on those black bricks, I remember they were warm. The sun had warmed them up, but it was cold, but it felt really good. And I remember looking into the water in just like despair, just feeling the weight of that. I remember looking into the water. And then it like dawned on me. And I remember I said it out loud. It was such a profound moment. I said it out loud. I said, God, I need you. I actually need you. And this is something that, that I'd known. I'm a pastor's kid. I'd read my Bible. I've heard the sermons. I knew I needed God. But in that moment, as I was standing there on those bricks, as I was looking into the pool, for the first time ever, I really understood what it was like to need God, to really need God. I needed him to drive. I needed him to get my, my degree. I needed him to go to work. For the first time ever, I realized that I needed God. Like my brain wouldn't work unless God helped me. I needed God. And in that moment, through that difficulty, God showed me that. He allowed me to feel it. I needed God. And I began to reflect over all the times that my epilepsy had been an issue over the last couple of years. In that season, it was kind of on and off. And I began to realize every single time it happened, I was brought to my knees in prayer. I was brought to this reality that, that I need God to live. And I was in constant prayer every time this happened. And I remember in that moment saying, God, thank you. Somehow, even though I, I, I felt like I was losing everything, I felt like I'd lost my future. I remember saying to God, thank you. Because he showed me something that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. It says this in Job chapter 42, verse 5. After God speaks, Job responds. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. God permits adversity. Some of the most terrible things that can happen in our life, God allowed those to happen. God permitted it. And God's permissions are purposeful. God is trying to do something in the midst of your pain. God is trying to do something in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your suffering, in those situations that we're, we're tempted to look at and say, well, the world's just a fallen place. Satan's back at it again. No, no, no. God is greater than Satan. God is in control. At any moment, God could step in and reverse that situation. God can do anything. But God permits these things to happen to us because God wants to use them to shape us. God wants to use them to reveal something powerful about himself. There are things that we can only learn from the bottom of the pit. 
If that wasn't the case, a lot of the, the stories of these characters in the Bibles would be very different. God has something to say to you in the midst of your grief. God doesn't want it to be a barrier blocking you. He doesn't want it to be a speed bump slowing you down. God wants to launch you. He wants to give you more passion, more resolve, more strength. But we have to respond to adversity in the right way. We can't look at it and say, woe is me. Life sucks. Guess I'll just have to move on. Guess I'll have to adjust my direction. No, we have to do what Job did. We have to hold on to him in the midst of that. We need to wrestle with him. We need to contend with him. We need to accept that he's in control. And we need to ask the question, God, what are you doing? What are you teaching me? What are you telling me in the midst of this? If at the end of Job chapter 2, Job would have said, well, guess I'll just start over. Guess I'll just get a, get a new wife. I'll have some more kids. We'll start from the bottom up. He would have missed everything. If in Job chapter 37, right before God speaks, if Job says, look, it's been long enough. I've been calling for you, God, and you're not there. You're not answering. If at the end of 37, Job would have said, all right, well, this is just life. He would have missed it. Hold on to God in the midst of what he's doing. Some of you are in this season right now. Hold on to God in that. Some of you are about to step into a season of adversity, of loss, of grief. Hold on to God when you get there because God wants to use that to propel you. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going, to, we're going to close with some more worship. And I'm going to pray for us right now. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom, Lord, and we thank you for teaching us. Lord, we pray, continue to be patient with us as we process loss, as we process grief. Lord, allow us to hold on to you. Give us the resolve to turn to you and to nothing else. Give us the wisdom to hear your voice in the midst of that. In the midst of the craziest storm, God, speak to us and show us. Show us that you are good and show us that you have a plan. Lord, guide us and protect us. In Christ's holy name we pray.